Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Walters Wanderings Travel Podcast. Uh, I believe this is episode number 40, or thereabouts. I've kind of lost track, but that's okay. Um, I guess I'm allowed to. It's May, and May is a great month for me because May is the month I became a travel advisor slash dream creator and all of that. And so because it's my anniversary month, you are going to get the presents. Um, simply put, if you book a trip in May with Walter's Wanderings Travel and you travel, you complete your travel, I will send you either a $25 gift card to the establishment of your choice or a $50 future travel credit. The trip has to be four nights at least and $1,000 retail value, not including airfare and insurance. Um, but otherwise, uh, simple, uh, simple things to get to and simple to attain. And I'm happy to go ahead and help with your next vacation and help you start wandering. So, again, $25 in a gift card, $50 in future travel credit. Once you travel, if you book in the month of May with Walter's Wandering Travel. So, today we have a very interesting guest on the show. His name is Phil Muse. He comes to us all the way from Jolly Old England. And uh, he is jolly too. You can see the smile on his face. And, um, well, as I said, you're if you're if you're listening, you can't see the smile on on his face, but I, I assure you, it is there. Um, but Phil has had some travel experiences in his life that are unique and uh, one of a kind, um, and uh, he's going to share them with us. So, uh, good day, uh, Mr. Phil, and how are you? Hello there. I'm really well, thank you. It's uh, it's lovely to be speaking to you uh, all the way from uh, England, where it's very cold, despite it being May. It's very cold today. Well, we understand that. We 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 know there 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 are several of those uh, uh, phrases that pays, and one is the coldest spring you ever spend is in London, and the coldest uh, summer you ever spend is in San Francisco. So I mean, I know how it goes. It's the way yeah. it's the way it's the land of the land, um, but uh, it, it will it will improve. You you wait ten minutes and something will happen. So you told me previously that you had a very uh, interesting travel experience with uh, the uh, Saint uh, Teresa of Calcutta long before she became a saint. So why don't you tell everyone about uh, what went down when you were in India? Um, so it was 19, summer of 1996, and I just graduated from university in Newcastle in the north of England, and I decided I was going to go travelling for a year. So I decided at the last minute I was going to go to India, and I bought a one-way ticket to Delhi, from London to Delhi. And I was in India for about three months traveling, had the most amazing experience. Um, I did a, a course in Tibetan Buddhist meditation uh, at the home of the Dalai Lama. Uh, ironically, he was in the UK at the time that I was there, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, up in Dharamsala in northern India. Uh, we got to spend time up in the foothills of the Himalayas, which was just amazing. And my trip to India culminated with me going to Calcutta, as it was then known, Calcutta. And I was brought up by my grandmother, uh, which I'll tell you a little bit about later, and who was very religious, and she used to raise a lot of money for Mother Teresa and send it over through her church. And I'd always wanted to meet her. I was I was I was absolutely fascinated by this uh, woman. 
And I always wanted to meet her. So I just said it in my head, I'm going to go and meet Mother Teresa. And I got to Calcutta and I stayed at the Salvation Army Hostel on Sudder Street, if my memory serves me right. And on the second day there, I met this amazing uh, Japanese guy who was also staying there um, called Hiro. His name was Hiro. And he was telling me that he was volunteering at one of the hospices for Mother Teresa that she ran. The, it was called the Caligat Hospice. And I said, would I be able to come and help out? And he said, yeah, sure. So he took me along the next day and I went into the hospice. And nothing could have prepared me for what I was about to experience. It was... Horrific. I mean, it, it was these people were being looked after in great conditions with a lot of care, but the poverty. Although I'd spent three months in India, nothing could have prepared me for what I was about to experience. So uh, it was an incredible, life changing experience. And then after the third day of volunteering there, uh, Hero said to me, Would you like to come to morning mass at Mother Teresa's chapel? <laughs> uh, at her convent and I was like yeah twist my arm twist my arm exactly uh, so we got up I remember it was really early I think we well, sure to, it is oh yeah about 7 a.m or something yeah uh, easily five or six a.m oh sure uh -huh. uh, yeah, it was really early I mean I'm going back quite a few years now but it, yeah it was really early and we went in and we took mass and she came in she was in a wheelchair uh, at the time. I mean, bearing in mind, this was less than 12 months before she passed away. Right. She was very frail. Um, but she was, uh, she was one of these people, although she was frail and she was in a wheelchair, when they brought her in, oh my goodness, her eyes lit up the room. Her eyes, there was just so much sparkle and love. That's the only way I could describe it. It was so much love in this woman's eyes. And I, I mean, I even get tingling, tingles on the back of my neck thinking about it now. Sure. And I could not believe. I was really emotional. I was could not believe. Oh, I yeah, was... it, 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 you, it, it's one of those moments when even if you're not prone to being starstruck, you are starstruck, but for the right reasons, you know? Yeah, completely. And And I just could not believe that I was in the presence of her. And... Uh, and then when we came to take our communion and I went down to the communion rail, they wheeled her over to take her communion and she stayed in her chair and she was next to me. And I got to take the communion right next to her. And I just remember, I can't remember what I saw because all I remember was the tears were streaming. I mean, you can see it's making sure. me emotional remembering it now. And... I was just absolute. I thought I knew there. I am in the presence of someone incredibly special, someone incredibly special, and I was. You know, I didn't think we'd get to meet her properly afterwards, but she she came along. She shook. Uh, the, we went along past her and we shook her hand, and then it was when we got chatting to some of the other nuns. They said. Tomorrow, would you like to come back for breakfast and have breakfast with mother? Uh, again, uh, my arm. You know, yeah. 
I, I saw, I, yeah, I'll make room on my schedule for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was absolutely amazed by it. I mean, I just couldn't believe that this was happening to me. I'm from this little village in Weirdale in County Durham in north of England. And, you know, um, I'm, I'm a farmer's son. And uh, here I was in India going to have my breakfast with Mother Teresa. So it was a very formal um, uh, beginning to, you know, the next day we, we went along and it was all very set out and formal and she wasn't there straight away and then they brought her in to, so we had our breakfast first and then we got to meet her and I got to shake her hands. And, and in my bum bag, I had a little wooden crucifix with um, that belonged to my grandmother and my mother and it had a necklace attached to it and i asked her to and this was my comfort this crucifix was my comfort and i asked her if she would bless the crucifix it was just a really simple wooden crucifix you know um and i said would you bless it and she was like of course i will and she she took it in her hands and she said a prayer and it was it was a that crucifix when when basically about a year, nine months later when i was back in the uk my grandmother who brought me up she passed away and i just instinctively knew that that crucifix needed to go with her so i placed that crucifix that mother Teresa blessed in my grandmother's coffin but back to the breakfast with mother Teresa, we got to chat to her and i said to her i got told you'd been to my boarding school back in the 1970s and she looked slightly confused because obviously she's been all over the world and right, of And I said to her I she asked where the school was and I, I told her and I explained that it was a boys boarding school and I said perhaps you remembered the chaplain and she looked at me and she says did he have hair like um like grease back hair. And I said, yes, he did. And she goes, and glasses. And I said, yes, he did, that was him. And she went, I remember now. And she remembered going to the boarding school, you know, to being at the service in the chapel long before um, I'd ever gone there. And she, she was incredible. She had a very dry sense of humor. She asked me what I, thought of the hospice of the work they were doing i told her that i thought it was incredible but i was very honest with her that i was finding it very difficult that uh, to deal with um mentally what i was seeing the poverty you know it was and i, I was really honest with her um and she was really kind with me you know and she said you know it's not for everybody but if you can't help in that way if you decide that's not for you there are other ways in which you can help, you know, i.e. fundraising or uh, spreading awareness. And we, we got about 25 minutes with her, but she was lovely. She was absolutely lovely and just one of those special moments. And you sort of come out of that meeting wondering, did it, did it happen? I mean, this was before uh, mobile phones. Um, right. Selfies. I have not, and I honestly, I have not got a photograph with her. 
but you know, and I didn't take one of that because I just didn't feel it was. A I, I, I understand. But, but I was there and I know, and I thought, well, you know what? I can go to my grave knowing I've met her and I've spent time with her and I engaged with her and she engaged with me. And I'll, I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. It was just. Well, you, and you also have Hero from Japan who can certainly vouch for you. So you're all good, you know? You're all yeah. good. You have eyewitnesses, so you're all good on that. Exactly, exactly. So you had, but you had an, uh, another um, completely um, <laughs> different experience dealing with a royal who is un-Theresa-like, if we could say so, in Princess mm -hmm. Anne. And, yeah. and this, this is also an Asian story because you're obviously the Occidental tourist and you go to these places that are, you know, Asian, which is great because, I, I, you know, we, we all like to be world travelers. So yeah, yeah. tell us about your encounter with Princess Anne, but more importantly, what happened before the encounter? Okay. All right. Um, I've not told my family this story. <laughs> so this this will be the first for them to hear it. Well, um, it's, it's good to spill your guts. You know, we, 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 we like that. It, remember, it, it cleanses your soul, you know. So, 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 so let, let, let's hear it. I hope so, because there's a lot to atone for. What happened was, after I left Calcutta, so I basically, I stayed, I only did one more day at Prince, at, uh, at Mother Teresa's hospice, because uh, one of my patients passed away, and it was really hard for me to deal with. And I just said, I, I can't deal with this. I, I need to move on and do something else and the plan was always i was going to go and work in hong kong and this was in the run-up so this is the september 96 and this is in the run-up to the handover the following july back to from from because hong kong was a british colony and it was still under british governance and it was handed back to china uh, the following july in 97 so i'd gone to hong kong and some of my friends from um, the north of England and the south had um, congregated in Hong Kong and eventually we got a flat together. So I shared a flat with these two girls, two really good friends, Hannah and Kay, still good friends with now. And I was working in bars and nightclubs. So I had a bar job that I did during the day and then I had I did two nights a week in a nightclub uh, working behind the bar. And then we also got on for extra money to save up for travelling with an agency that provided waiters and bar staff for events. So we started to do these little events and um, we got booked for an event at this building and I, I couldn't remember what it was. And we went out this night and got really, really drunk, really drunk. We, we had been working really hard all week and it was during, the, it was the middle of the week, but for us, it was like our Saturday, our equivalent of Saturday night. We got hideously drunk. I think we'd stayed up most of the night back at the flat, carried on drinking back at the flat, eventually got a few hours sleep. And then my alarm went off and I remembered, oh, crikey, we've got this booking for this catering event and we can't let these guys down. And it was like I hadn't even ironed my shirt. We looked disheveled. I mean, my eyes were bloodshot. We turned up in so, so there's four of us turned up for this job. And the supervisor gave us one look and went, Oh my God, what state are you in? Ah. And it was when we got to this new building that we'd realized, 
oh wow this is the british the new british consulate that they've just built ready in advance for the handover of hong kong to the chinese so <laughs> the next thing i i'm looking over in the corner of my eye i think is that chris patton the governor of hong kong over there because recognized him from the news he's a british politician and my friends hannah said yeah it is it's chris patton so the next thing was um who's who's going to be here we've got a vip it's princess anne and i was like we were in such a state and at that time they had no one no time to go and get any other staff so we had to wait on the uh with on princess anne well they gave me a tray of um with about 15 champagne flutes with champagne in and one of them was at the front which had orange juice in because apparently princess anne doesn't drink or she doesn't drink at such occasions and the orange juice was specifically for her and the tray was originally given to my friend kareen but kareen had been drinking all night with us and she had the shakes so right. bad she begged off of that duty and rightfully so tray is not going to stay still no, so because they're top-heavy anyways. You know, it's, you know, the champagne flutes are top-heavy when they're filled, so it's a, it's a real precarious thing to walk them over, even if you're completely sober. But if you're hungover, this is an extra challenge for you. So I was like, I was so that I had to take the tray off Kareen, and I'm stood there with this tray of glasses when I'm, I can feel my hands are starting to shake. And then the next thing, Princess Anne comes over and they lead her over, and I'm just thinking in my head, take the goddamn glass, take the glass away. Because <laughs> as soon as I had given her her glass of orange juice, right. I could then turn around to the other dignitaries and give champagne and perhaps even put the tray down. But I couldn't <laughs> do anything until Princess Anne had been served. Oh, of course. Frank and I had, my head was banging with um, hangover. <laughs> and I just remember thinking... They're not going to believe this when we get back home to the UK. They're not going to believe a word of this. But it did. And when I do catch up with my friends who were there, and I'll say, we, did we really do that? And they go, yeah, we did. We served drinks to Princess Anne and the cream of British political society with absolute – when I say hangovers – I actually think we were still drunk because we'd only been to bed a few right. hours. Right, you hadn't been, you hadn't, it hadn't washed out of your system yet. Sure, mm -hmm. I yeah, yeah. Um, but in my defence, I was twenty-six at the time. Oh, and... sure, youth, indiscretion, <laughs> youth. Yeah, we know about that. Trust now, me. Now, I, I am a lot of indiscretion too, so don't worry about it. <laughs> I am far more professional, far more professional now. Um, but yeah, it was that was a really bizarre, really bizarre. Yeah, that's, that's, that's great, those are great stories, and they're so they're so you know uh, they're, they're opposite. They're so opposite of each other. So I really yeah. enjoy that. You know, I really do. Now, going back, um, you indicated that you wrote a book because, in many ways, I consider you what I call an overcomer, someone who's overcome a lot. And uh, you can use that word if you wish. Um, and, you know, you, you mentioned you're raised by your grandmother, which is obviously, you know, uh, uh, not so not so unique nowadays in, in our society, but certainly back when you were a child, yeah. it might 
it was probably more unique. So why don't you tell us, you know, about being raised by your grandmother and then the book you wrote and all of that. Okay. Um, so yeah, so I grew up on a farm in the northeast of England and um, the story really starts off about sort of summer of 1976, which in England that year was incredibly hot. It was one of the hottest summers on record. And we had this idyllic life. We had a sheep farm in the Durham Dales. And if you've ever seen the British TV show or Creatures Great and Small, the landscape where we live is identical to that. It's only uh, That's only set about an hour's drive from here. So we were in this beautiful picturesque setting. We had this beautiful farmhouse. Um, we had animals, dogs. We had a river running through the bottom end of the farm. And there was myself. My I was six. My younger brother was four. And my elder brother was 16. And there was the three of us and our two parents. And we had the most idyllic life. And then 18 months later, um, in November 1977, I went to bed one night uh, as a seven-year-old and woke up during the night and heard movement, went through to my parents' bedroom. And my mother was sat in the bed crying and said, uh, I'm sorry, darling, your daddy's died. And she was just absolutely grief-stricken. And then the next day, I remember the next day I, I had to go to school and I wasn't allowed to say anything to my little brother. He hadn't been told yet. And yeah. I had to pretend everything was normal. And then that weekend, I think so. then the day after that, it was the weekend, My, I said to my uh, mother, where is daddy now? And she says, oh, we've put him in the dining room at the end. We grew up in this 12th century right. farm. It was huge. And she said, we put him in the dining room, darling. And I said, I want to go and see him. And my mother was like, that's not a good idea. You're only seven years old. And I was like, no, I want to see my dad. Now, I'd never knew what a, a coffin, we called coffins, caskets, what, what one was. Um, I don't know what I expected to see, but I got taken into the room to see my dad. And basically, I suffered. What I now know is I suffered post-traumatic stress disorder. No, no doubt. I know that now, yeah. And so within a couple of days, my I started having dreams that my dad was like this scary ghost from Scooby-Doo who was coming to get me. And it, it absolutely terrified me. And the dreams were relentless. They didn't stop. And then 10 weeks after my father's death, uh, my mother drove me to primary school one morning. So I was still seven and she drove me to school and kissed me goodbye. And I never saw her again. And she'd taken ill that afternoon and was rushed to hospital. And she died that night and she was only 43 years old. Wow. So she'd left behind myself, who was seven, my younger brother, Roger, who was five, Richard, who was 18, and then my two grandparents, my mother's parents, who were both uh, 70, about 70, they came along and they had to deal with the uh, the, the devastation that we... Sure, the aftermath and all that. Oh, my goodness. Um, so my grandmother and grandfather had to help my brother run the sheep farm. And Roger and I, my younger brother and I, were a five-year-old and seven-year-old and left without any parents. And six months later, um, some f friends of my dad's who were 
members of a Masonic charity said, we will help the family stay together because my grandparents were so old. Right. So I was given a charitable grant and they sent me away to boarding school. So I went away to boarding school for 10 years. Wow. And I got to come home every month and see my family. And then yeah, that's, that's just unbelievable. So you yeah. wrote about all of this. Yeah, so I wrote, this is the book I wrote. Um, so I wrote this a few about two or three years ago. That's it, you can see it. Orphan oh, um, And originally the title was called Orphan Boy. And I decided I was going to write this story about my family as a, an exercise for myself. I didn't think it would be published or anyone would read it. But I did phone both my brothers to ask them if they would give their consent to me writing the story because it was partly their story as well. And they said, yeah, you go for it, you do it. So I wrote the book and it took me about a year. And then eventually we managed to get a publishing date set for it. And just as we'd set the publishing date, my younger brother, Roger, was found dead in his apartment in Mallorca in Spain, where he lived. And I'd lost my, although this is not actually us on the cover, the, the, the publishers used a uh, photo of two of the kids. Uh, my younger brother was my best friend and I'd lost him. And he, so I obviously I had to put the book on hold for a little while. And then when we came to publish the book, I said, I'm going to change the title from Orphan Boy to Orphan Boys because I felt I now had a responsibility to tell Roger's side of the story as well, as much as, as I could, oh. and to remember his memory. So it was bittersweet, you know. It was um, it was tough. Yeah, it was tough. Yeah, I, I, I can only imagine if it, something that takes a year to write means that there's a lot going on and there's a, there's a lot to process and, and, and you want to put it down in exactly the right way. Yeah. Um, now, this book is available on all the usual book buying channels. Yeah, it's available and in, in the US. It's available at Barnes & Noble, Stock It, and it's available on Amazon. Um, it's available in Canada. It's been sold um, around the world. So, uh, yeah, you can find it pretty much anywhere, It's uh, especially through Amazon. But, yeah, it's it's sold uh, reasonably well in the States, and it's um, I've had some lovely feedback from American readers, which is lovely. Well, you know, you get a glimpse of, of of life in England too, and also your life. So it work it works it works out, uh, you know, wonderfully in that regard. There's no doubt. Well, yeah, it's a very positive book. It's a very it's a book full of hope and love. It's not what I would ever refer to as a misery memoir because yes, there are tragic circumstances in it, but there sure. is so much love and positivity in how we came as a family, how we came to terms with what we had to deal with and took our lives forward. And that, that was really important. That's, that's the bottom line. You have to keep moving forward because if you keep yeah. looking at the back, you'll, you'll, you'll hurt yourself basically. And in more ways than one. So Definitely. it's been unbelievable. I love your stories. I love all you. Your stories. Thank you so much. And, and, uh, you know, I will, I will certainly, uh, you know, look up Orphan Boys uh, on any of the regular book buying channels or if you go to a retail bookstore. Yeah, there are still a few of those left. You can, yeah. go, you can find it or you can order it up there. 
I really appreciate you being on the show with me today. And uh, I will be in touch with you uh, as conditions warrant. So I thank you so much for being with us, Phil Muse, uh, joining us today on the Walters Wandering Travel Podcast. That'll do it for this edition. That's unbelievable stuff. I tell you, I find them everywhere. And listen, if you want to be on the Walters Wandering Travel Podcast, just get in touch with Scott at WaltersWanderingTravel.com because everyone has a travel story and yours is no less important than anyone else's. Take care, have a great day, and we'll see you soon.